G'day, my name is Nick Samios. I am the Director and Fund Manager here at Hermes Capital, and I am your host for the live stream that we call Lunch Money. We're back for 2022. Uh, we've got a couple of fabulous guests. We're going to be talking about the consequences of ProBuild. Um, Lunch Money is uh, your home for uh, special situations, workouts, and capital raising professionals. Uh, cue the intro. Okay, uh, we had the uh, collapse of ProBuild uh, last week. It was a it was a big event. They're a very large company with lots of uh, lots of subbies uh, around town who were taking hits. Uh, I heard someone tell me this morning that they were talking to someone who was owed ten million dollars. Uh, I've certainly got a couple of files that I'm working on where uh, uh, ProBuild are, are in the uh, in the debtors' ledgers. Um, so it's a big story. Some people are saying it's uh, it's the big event that's going to. Uh, uh, put the insolvency practitioners back in business, uh, but we've heard that all before. I've got uh, two people who are going to help me talk about um, ProBuild and insolvency and uh, the Security of Payments Act and and uh, subcontractors thrown under the bus. Uh, what's happened and uh, how can they perhaps avoid it next time? My first guest uh, is Mark Robinson, and my uh, Mark Robinson is with uh, DeVries Taya DVT Group, and my other guest is Mark Yarm, who's uh, the uh, the property specialist at ERA Legal. And I'm going to start off by introducing you to Mark Robinson. G'day, Mark. How are you going? Uh, good, thanks. Really well. Fantastic. Now, uh, when this uh, when this ProBuild matter uh, first hit the papers, uh, I was very opportunistic and I shared it on LinkedIn. Um, to, and and uh, you made the comment um, that about risk. You were talking about the location of risk uh, with um, with subcontractors. Um, my, my, my immediate comment was, uh, I think, talking about how you go about selling a business in this industry that is insolvent. Um, but the, the conversation got a little bit around risk. So to start off with, we've had a, a large company. It's got some major sites around the country. And we're not talking about, you know, residential homes. We're talking about uh, office towers uh, where there's, there's uh, you know, the, the contract sums are huge. Um, and we, ha we do have this issue of risk. So just talk us through what you mean by risk in this contracting scenario. Um, well, what I mean by, by risk is that the, uh, in the current environment, builders are, are, are forced to take on a lot of risk to be competitive in the, in the contracting scenario. Um, if you look, for example, at Lend Lease's uh, you know, most recent available public accounts, they're looking at a margin of just two to three percent on their major projects, and so it doesn't. You know, when when you're looking at the transfer of risk, which is essentially done on a on a fixed sum basis, um, it doesn't take much uplift in material costs and labour, and then maybe overlay that with maybe one of your major projects having some technical difficulties and and soaking up you know, more more funds in that regard. Doesn't uh, take take much to chew through that that margin and actually be into into a significant loss position. So that's the the risk at the the uh, the builder or head contractor end. Um, you know the the builders are highly aware of that risk, and so they try their best to pass the risk downstream uh, to their subcontractors. And so uh, and they and subcontractors in turn uh, try and uh, push that downstream as, as as much as as much as they can. But fundamentally, we've got a, a system that's that's built around very razor thin margins, 
as pressing up against a you know uh, significant rise in costs uh, in a fixed sum contract environment. Okay, so so really, you, you know, when you if you if you were to go the other way around, starting you know the person who supplies the timber and supplies the steel uh, and, and the other materials, those costs have been priced into the subcontractor's contract, and that's presumably a fixed price contract because the person that they're contracting to wants to know how much you know wants to keep a lid on the cost because they in turn have tended. Uh, mm-hmm. on a certain price and it all works at that price but of course we're now in yeah. an inflationary environment so I guess yeah. uh, the risks are, are even are even bigger if you're talking about the guy at the top's pricing on a two or three percent margin and sometimes mm-hmm. these contracts can be worth hundreds of millions of dollars so, uh, so right. they're pricing at those margins um, it doesn't take you know we're talking about inflation could potentially be 10 percent when it comes to building products yes uh, and you know that might might lead to an inflationary Times is it is it is it better, you know? Maybe and I might leap through leap to a couple of potential solutions there. Uh, you know, I, I think there's also a problem around inadequate scoping of these major projects uh, to identify where those price risks might be and what their financial impact is. But uh, you know, there might be a better sharing of, of risk. Uh, whilst I don't think it's ever going back to a, a cost plus uh, style model. Nonetheless, um, you know, there, I think there needs to be a better meeting of the minds between developers and builders and downstream to subcontractors as to what is fair to be fixed on and what is also fair to share, uh, you know, risk in terms of price inflation that is out of the hands of, of the contractor. Now, you've seen your fair share of, of, of insolvencies, obviously, um, and, you, you know, you've, you've worked on uh, insolvencies uh, in in the construction industry so uh, and you know every time you've got to write a report as to, and to try and explain to the creditors what went wrong uh, so so is that is that a common feature oh look uh, I think um, essentially very sharp uh, pricing uh, sometimes underquoting but even if it's not underquoted um, you know there, there has been blowouts either due to poor management um, uh, which is uh, you know, led, uh, led to rework that has has to be done, um, and and uh, uh, and also poor scoping in terms of really identifying you know what expertise is required uh, to do the job, uh, and you know quite often you know particularly you know contractors and small builders are trying to work their way up the stream from you know tier four to tier three to tier two, and they're quite often doing it with very thin balance sheets, and so they really can't take a knock. On, on contracts with, with uh, such uh, slim margins. Okay. All right, Mark. Well, look, uh, we're just going to pop you back in the waiting room and we'll introduce our other guest and uh, let's see where he picks up where you left off. Just one moment and we're bringing in Mark Young. G'day, Mark. How are you? G'day, Nick. I'm well. Thanks for having me on. Fantastic. Now, Mark, uh, just, just, just if you could just quickly explain your role, uh, your uh, you're in the property space, obviously. Uh, so, who who are your clientele, and what, what's the what's the most common thing that crosses your desk? What are you what are people coming to you for? So, I mostly do work, Nick, for uh, builders, uh, developers, and some larger subbies. So, the types of things that I'm seeing across my desk lately, last quarter, um, which is good, I think it's a reflection of the economy picking back up again, is a lot a lot of new contracts. So not as many disputes, but you know, like new head contracts being signed up, which shows me that there's lots of projects in the in the wings and coming along. 
that's good to see because prior to that there was a very there wasn't very many of those um uh, i also get a fair chunk as you probably aren't surprised by um uh disputes about payments and and um a lot of it comes down to uh the the contractual risk that people are taking on so, so, so mark just robinson say, yeah well yeah, mark just robinson just talked about it yeah. So first, I just wanted to say that uh, uh, people that watch Lunch Money are certainly used to me having uh, insolvency lawyers on. But just to be very clear, you're coming. You're a property guy, um, so you're coming from a from that perspective. So you've got the hands on. It's not something that you do sometimes. It's something that you do all the time. Um, so yeah, just pick up on some of those points that that Mark made. Yeah, Mark Mark Robinson's spot on about the contractual risk. You know, like. All of this really comes down to what is in your contract because that dictates what your risk profile will be for any particular project. So, you know, like if someone excludes the subterranean risk and all of the in-ground risk is then shifted across to somebody else, well, then happy days for the person who's done that because what it means is um, that's not a risk that someone's um, going to be sitting there and stuck with. Um, what I see... Sorry, so can you, can you just, 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 just in one minute, can you just sort of tease out what you just said then, the subterranean risk and, and all of that? Yeah, so um, it's, a good, it's a good example of where a builder, um, it's always a risk that a builder take, takes a close look at. Um, it's where there can be a lot of latent conditions and that's whatever you find in the ground. So when a builder is going and pricing a job, they'll have geotechnical engineering reports um, they'll know generally the the composition of the what's in the ground, whether it's clay, rock, soil, sand, whatever. But they can't know for sure until they start excavating for the foundations or basements or whatever it is that they're doing. So it's always a big risk area uh, and it's a bit of an unknown. Um, drilling down into those areas is critical and understanding how to make those risks um, back to back for a builder with somebody who ultimately will be insured somewhere along the way, whether it's a geotechnical engineer, um, whether it's a structural engineer, hydraulic engineer, whoever it is, um, and also obviously the people who are doing the work um, and making it all seamlessly work together is something that is very frequently not done very well. Okay, and then, and then um, so I'd just like to remind uh, people watching or, or listening uh, live that if you're watching us on uh, LinkedIn or YouTube or on Facebook, uh, they're all, uh, we're streaming to all of those, uh, you can post a comment uh, or ask a question and I'm sure uh, either of our two Marks today would be happy to, uh, to take them on. Now, getting back specifically to what Mark Robinson was saying about the risk in terms of fixed costs, uh, you know, the, the, the big guys are tendering for these major jobs. They might have a 2 or 3% margin in them. Uh, I guess your guys are the people who are maybe subcontracting in some scenarios uh, to, to, to the big guys. Um, and then, so what, what are the things that they're talking to you about for them to try and manage, uh, manage that pricing risk where they've got, you know, fixed price contracts and, you know, we've got, as we said before, we're in an inflationary environment. Uh, your materials can suddenly cost, uh, cost more. You've also got this... Uh, this whole this COVID uh, scenario, where sometimes you don't have people turning up. But what, firstly, in terms of fixed prices and changing prices, and then I'd like to come back to you about uh, liquid about uh, delays and, and those sorts of things. Mm. So the starting point for the building industry is that risk is getting passed down, and where you're talking about a pro build type builder um, of tier one, tier two size. Uh, they're normally dictating terms to their subbies and it's 
it's not always on a take it or leave it basis, but it's pretty close to being that. So subbies don't really get a great deal of uh, autonomy in deciding what their risk is going to be. It's kind of, well, this project is going to involve this degree of risk. And if the subby at least does the minimum, which is understand what that risk is, then they understand what, what they need to pass through. And, and tell me, I'm just trying to find a comment that I had here on LinkedIn. I've lost it now, but it was, um, it was uh, one of the team from... Um, uh, let me just find it now. But what they, what they were saying is, you know, these problems happen where the subcontractors are wearing all the pricing risk. Um, you know, is there any chance in the future we see a scenario where people are saying, look, we need a certain quality. Uh, we're not asking you to tender the price, but we're asking you to tender on a service basis as to, to the service that you're providing because tendering on the price of risk just puts too much financial risk into the project. Mm -hmm. Or is that, yeah, is that never going to happen? It, it, it could happen, Nick. So it, I guess it really depends on the job because um, generally speaking, each project will have its own risk profile, like top down. So um, example, you know, a, a school project, um, time is pretty important because the government or whoever it is that's um, the proponent of the development is going to want to make sure the school's delivered for first term or whatever whatever they've committed to the parents who are going to be you know the old end user of this product so time is important and probably scope not so much and the cost is probably not that important in comparison to the the competing risk areas but a boarding house for example not so like cost is the most important thing Time's pretty important and scope, the developer doesn't really care if they're a boarding house, really. Um, difference, again, if you're building a luxury $18 million house for somebody um, in, at Point Piper, um, they're not likely to care that much about um, the cost of things. They just want to make sure they get their mosaic um, wall feature or whatever it is that they're building. So there, there's some pretty extreme examples, Nick, of what the risk profiles might look like and when... Um, there might be a chance to include, like, push or play around with some of those risk profiles. It really okay, is very dictated by that. I've, I've actually found this comment here. It was from Joe, uh, Joe uh, Buchanan, uh, who's the CEO at Castaway Forecasting, and we've had um, Michael Ford, who uh, is the founder of uh, Castaway Forecasting, on our podcast before, and it was always fantastic and very interesting to listen to. Yeah, they've talked about scoping and promises, and uh, I guess you've sort of covered a little bit of it, Low. Uh, I dare say that Joe would have more questions to ask. If you're listening, Joe, uh, then fire away. Okay, so I just want to move on a little bit. I'm going to bring uh, Mark back. Um, and I wanted to get on to uh, the Security of Payments Act. Now, supposedly we've got the Security of Payments Act and uh, it, it, you know, it, it, it is to protect uh, subcontractors, uh, I guess, and to also arguably protect contractors as well, but mainly it came about to protect subcontractors. I mean, what, what role does Security of Payments Act have, have uh, in this sort of scenario, uh, Mark Young? Yeah, um, it, it's there to provide a uh, means, quick and cheap, to recover your money. Um, you can get it, get effectively what you could otherwise get in court done in about three months all up when you wash it all up as opposed to between 12 to 18 months. Um, it's a pay now, fight later basis. Now, now, you're a security of payments expert. Uh, can, I, can I call you that? Is that okay? 
if you must. Yeah. Okay. Um, now, this is one thing for uh, one thing that people keep asking me about. I mean, we've, Hermes has been going for twelve years, and uh, I get it time and time again. Where in the Security of Payments Act does it say anything about protecting the financier to the subby? Uh, it's a trick question, of course. It doesn't. There's nothing in the security. Am I right? Yeah, that's right. yeah, there's nothing in the Security Department Act, and and there are a lot of people who uh, you know who lend to subbies on the basis of oh, the Security Department Act. But let me tell you, there's no relief there. Mark Robinson, uh, the Security Department Act. By the time you get there as an administrator, uh, sometimes it's uh, you know you've lost all the ability to claim under that. But sometimes you get called in to advise uh, to try and avoid insolvency. Have you had any uh, any experience with with Making claims on the security payments act as a as a as a restructuring guy. Uh, yes, but on both sides uh, making them, um, but it's always just a cash flow issue. Right? Yeah, it's a timing issue, um, and so you still got to justify that, that, that the work's been done at the end of the day, in terms of settling up. Um, you know the, the claim you've made under the so it's not not free money at all. You've got to actually um, show that uh, you know the servicer and the, and the building works have been done. I guess stepping back a bit, uh, I, I think probably an equally effective strategy for subbies to uh, uh, you know protect themselves um, further down the track in the insolvency environment is to uh, you know, use the PPSR regime in terms of you know the the resources uh, that the uh, the owners or the principals of the subcontractor have utilised in in the business and and try and elevate themselves up the priority list. Uh, such that they can have more say in and around the restructure of their business uh, should it uh, become. Uh, so, so just quick, so just tell us, tell us how does that work in practice? Um, well, uh, you know, the earlier it's done, the better, and, and it should be business as usual sort of approach. But uh, as you know, is ordinarily the case with subcontractors. Uh, uh, you know, uh, the principal uh, of you know the shareholders, stroke directors, are quite often the same same people are putting funds and supporting the subcontractor when right. they put right. funds in. Uh, they should make it make sure it's done on a secured basis. Yes. Uh, but similarly, if um, advisors to that subcontractor are putting in services, uh, they should also consider utilising the PPSR regime to secure what they're owed as well. Again, with a view, if down the track. Uh, there is a restructuring required. It's a bit like insurance, if you like, yeah, yeah. that they can secure payment of their fees, but also, more importantly, they can uh, uh, assist their client, the subcontractor, to be another vote uh, in terms of uh, a secured creditor to, to help a, uh, a, a restructure of funds required to, to assist the subcontractor to fight another day. Okay. Now, uh, I want to just show uh, a, an article here. Uh, pro build collapse. Owner WBHO would have pulled the plug earlier. Now, I just wanted to sort of uh, a bit of a change of pace here. Um, I've got a number of questions around this. Firstly, with respect to pulling the plug earlier, I wonder why they didn't. Now we can speculate, uh, but certainly in insolvency and restructuring circles, we've been talking for some time about all the job keeper, the government support. Uh, the bank uh, forbearances and loan deferrals and all that sort of thing. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of cheap capital floating around. Uh, I mean, I, I, I don't know why uh, why they didn't pull the plug earlier, uh, but I just wonder whether how many how many businesses in the construction industry, you know, up and down the the study stack, if you like, um, maybe could have pulled the plug earlier. But it's but but the 
the pulp plug pulling is is imminent. What what, what do you think, Mark? Mark Watson? Well, uh, sometimes if you know you're in a hole, um, you know, a cash flow hole, um, uh, even pulling the plug early, you might be able to get out of the hole. So there's the temptation to plug on further uh, in terms of uh, trying to find the solution to get out of the hole. Um, uh, and so it, it sort of feeds, uh, uh, feeds on itself. I've got to say WBHO has probably made that pronouncement with the benefit of hindsight. So, you know, more often than not in business, um, you know, as, as the facts of the matter uh, come out after, after the event, it is easy to opine as to what you could have done or should have done, uh, but actually didn't do. Um, uh, but, yeah, look, uh, I, I think what I quite often see is if there's a cash flow hole of a certain size called X and they can't see their way to uh, get out of it except by uh, going further and trying to solve either the technical problem or, or, uh, or renegotiate compromised claims, they'll continue to go further uh, into the contract and continue working, uh, which if it doesn't work out at the end of the day, they might owe 2X rather than X if they stopped, uh, stopped it up. And Mark Yum, you you get involved in uh, in collections as well. You were saying chasing chasing money. Uh, so uh, in a scenario like this this uh, this program scenario where you see that kind of a headline, you know, where that they're saying, oh, uh, you know, they, they could have pulled the plug a lot earlier. I mean, is that something that you, I mean, from your customer's point of view, the I guess the subcontractors that you're acting for trying to chase some money, that must be very frustrating. Um, yeah, what, what, what sort of feedback do you get on that? Yeah, it can, can be frustrating, Nick. Um, the, I guess there's too many different things. I mean, like I always, when I ask that question, say, oh, you know, what if, or what if we could have done this differently? It's kind of like, you know, there's no point in trying to speculate in how to fix that or you can deal with what's in front of you. So, I mean, like there's still things that could have been done up until, you know, like in, well, a company like ProBuild is experiencing those financial difficulties. And I just wanted to touch on and give you some numbers about the Security Payment Act because that's really, you know, a subby or a builder comes to me and says, I need to recover some money. It's the first thing you say. It's the greatest tool in your tool belt, which is use the Security Payment Act. But there's some pretty interesting numbers. Uh, the Department of Fair Trading, say, publish figures every quarter. The latest quarter published is the first quarter for this year. In three months, 229 applications for the Security of Payments Act was, were made for a total of $330 million. 72% of those were made by subbies. Out of those 229 applications, only 50% of them were determined and released. And out of those 50% that were determined released, only 19% of the value of the claimed amounts was awarded. Wow. So, so what does that tell you? Does that, does that tell you that people aren't getting their paperwork right, or the system doesn't work, or what? What, what, what does it tell you? It tells me. It tells me a few things. The paperwork and 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 the understanding of the use of the act is very poorly done by by subcontractors, and so often we get. And you guys must see the same thing in your lines of work. People coming and saying, "Oh, look, I've got this claim here. It's great. Like, can I get some help with it?" But there's not just the, the, submitting the claim is sort of like the last step you get to. Uh, you've got to have your variation um, proposals in on time. You've got to have your EOT claims with delayed damages claims in on time. 
And it's very frequently those are the things that are that are done um, poorly by by subcontractors. They just either don't have the resources available to administer contracts that they end up that they sign up to, or they do and they just don't do it in accordance with the contract. And the moment you don't do those things in accordance with the contract, you're, you're immediately uh, on the wrong side of it. Okay, and Mark uh, Mark Robinson, you were saying before, uh, you didn't say it directly, but I, I just sort of gleaned from something you were saying before, you've acted on the other side where you're, you're on the other side of these uh, security payments uh, claims. Is that, is that right? Yes. Where, yeah. That's correct, yeah. Yeah, and do those stats that Mark Young just said, do they surprise you? Or what, what do you uh, uh, Not at all. That's the first thing uh, an insolvency practitioner appointed to a head contractor would be looking at in terms of any, you know, Security Payment Act claims made on the head contractor is, uh, you know, is the claim, uh, you know, made pursuant to the contract and also pursuant to, to the Act. Um, and, you know, more often than not, there are holes there. So, uh, you know, because, you know, our, our motivation when appointed to a head contract is to preserve cash flow. Um, and so, uh, uh, you know, so that's what we look at. Okay. Now, uh, we've got uh, Chris Connor asked a question. I'm not sure who's best to answer this. Uh, he says, hey, Nick, what about project bank accounts? Does that have a place to improve certainty? Who wants to tackle that question? Well, uh, I, I guess there's some talk about that because I think in Queensland, and, and Mark can correct me if I'm wrong, I think the QBCC would be the statutory authority probably looking at, at implementing that. I think there's some new legislation, which is all about ring-fencing money on a project-by-project -project basis, uh, which sounds good in theory. My concern is that when a, a head contractor, particularly uh, and big subcontractors, are working on such tight margins, there's not a, an ability to have a central treasury function to move, which they currently uh, use the money for, you know, uh, funds in from Project C, my temporary plug, plug a hole in Project A. And so I'll be unable to do that. So what that will mean is, is that uh, implementation, I think, will require head contractors in particular to have a lot bigger balance sheet uh, to be able to plug, plug the holes, the cash flow holes in, in their projects. The only other thing I'd add to that is I couldn't agree with you more, Mark, about um, the, the uh, balance sheets needing to be boosted. But um, the only other answer I can see to that is by having the project financiers and, and the developers um, also tipping into the market uh, earlier on in the piece and, and it being a more like project alliance type model as opposed to master servant which it currently is the flavor of the month or has been for the decade yeah i guess uh, we've already got retentions uh, to contend with um, so it's probably not too far away from from that type of, of, of scenario but uh, anyway chris very, thank you very much uh, for watching and thank you very much for your question now uh, um so just getting back to uh, um the this other uh, article that i uh, the headline that we just had. When I, when I shared this on LinkedIn, the pro bill collapse, uh, I, uh, John Winter uh, made a comment about um, you know certain subcontractors talking down uh, the prospects of the sale of the business. And I think Mark Robinson, you agreed that uh, some talking down uh, the prospects of the sale. Now it's very hard to sell a construction business in that's that's in insolvency, isn't it? I mean, how do, you, well, how do you go about that, Mark? Have you done that? Uh, yes, I have. Um, I mean, 
you know, from an insolvency practitioner's perspective to minimise their risk, because that's the problem when, when we step into that environment, we assume uh, a lot of this construction risk. In an ideal world, we'd like to call a stop to everything and uh, and run the quantity surveyors over everything and, and work out exactly what the state of the building is and, uh, and what everybody is owed, and then also to flush out, uh, you know, who are the... Uh, the key uh, trades that are certifying trades that we need to keep sweet by, you know, paying their pre-appointment debts versus those that are just general suppliers of the find alternative supply. Um, uh, I, I, I guess it, so, but the reality is, you know, you stop a building site uh, uh, for, uh, for a period of time, even a short period of time, uh, you, you start, uh, you know, uh, elevating the, the, the level of, uh, of, of risk uh, and so, you know, it is the ones where I've had uh, a, a lot better uh, chance of success is, is, you know, going in with a financier who, uh, you know, is is well skilled, understands the risks, and is willing to take a bit of a, a uh, of a punt at least initially to assume some of those risks to keep the uh, keep uh, contractors on board and, and at least ticking over, albeit in a slower state until such time as we can determine where all the stakeholders actually actually sit. So yes, you know, stopping a site, the problem is, is also you, you're going to be, you know, danger of uh, all the, uh, you know, contracts either being terminated and then, you know, all of the various uh, security arrangements such as uh, bonds and guarantees being called up. So if you've got any ability to continue, uh, albeit in a reduced fashion with financial support, that's the best way to go. Frank Lafalado, thanks for watching, Frank, uh, makes the comment, uh, really need to support, uh, that you need, really need the support of the secured creditors, obviously, to keep trading on, uh, and that's very true as well, obviously, because the secured creditors have to, particularly if the projects are built, uh, the secured creditors have to make a decision. It's interesting, when, um, when the company goes into administration, very often uh, the subcontractors uh, are basically taking anything that's not bolted down because uh, they think they're not going to get paid. Uh, and a lot of stuff just disappears off the site straight away, doesn't it? Um, well, yeah, that's the role of an insolvency practitioner is to lock down the site uh, as, as quickly as possible. Um, and invariably also, um, uh, you'll probably be speaking to a representative of the CFMEU who will act as a collective agent for not just the members of the CFMEU, but also all the subcontractors, because uh, uh, they provide a, a service in, in that regard as well. And, you know, the, then we'll start some negotiations about old debt in terms of what portion of old debt do you need to pay in order to open up the site and continue uh, going forward. Okay, now I've got another question here from Adam Lyle. Thank you very much for watching, Adam. And it's good to, it was good to hear from you the other day and see your comment on LinkedIn. Uh, Adam says, hey, Nick, I'm interested in the views of both marks around the notion that larger head contractors are holding off taking any action because they were able, uh, where to go, able to hide behind the government's insolvent trading moratorium. Will we see more activity in the safe harbour area? And I think that's a good question around... Uh, uh, safe harbour uh, and whether or not it has a role to play in these sorts of scenarios. So um, I'll go back to you, Mark Robinson, then I'll come to you, Mark Yum. Oh, look, I, I think large uh, building contracts and, and even medium to small size ones are a fertile field uh, for uh, safe harbour, uh, world, world handled. But again, getting to Frank Lopolato's, uh, uh, you know, insightful comment, you know, 
that will only proceed through to success with the support of uh, secured lenders and uh, financiers general. Okay, now Mark Young, Adam's got a follow-up question there. This is more targeted at you. Uh, the Security of Payments Act, does Mark Young believe that the Security of Payments Act could be strengthened now given the fallout of ProBill collapse and the low numbers he was referring to earlier? So those stats that you trotted out earlier, Mark, you'd think that someone was lobbying on that uh, to try and get better outcomes. Well, how do you respond to, uh, to Adam Lyle there? Yeah, I think it might not be a matter of strengthening the Security of Payment Act, but more so educating industry along the way. So I think that that is a real shortfall and somewhere uh, that uh, there's a real area where the industry could improve itself. Um, the Security of Payment Act is a really potent tool already. Um, it already allows subcontractors to do a lot of things, but I mean, like the things that subbies get wrong, uh, they, they serve the payment claim to the wrong entity or they do more than one in a month and they're not allowed to. So these are, these are things that are more around education, I think. I agree with that. And, the, and to their credit, uh, whilst it might have been a, a bit harsh on that Subbies United uh, commentary around ProBill, uh, that, that, that is very effective self-help um, amongst subcontractors and Subbies United is, is very much in and around trying to equip the subcontractors uh, to have effective uh, claims such as uh, sober claims. So, so there is evidence of organisations out there uh, trying to lift subcontractors' game. Okay, now one of the, again, we had a really lively discussion around uh, when, when I did post that article on LinkedIn and uh, I asked the question about credit insurance and uh, uh, we've all got uh, a few good credit insurers in our networks and uh, they've made the comment that apparently ProBill was covered uh, right up until the day of the collapse. So if you were, if you had credit insurance, uh, then presumably presumably you, you were covered uh, for, the, for the event of insolvency. Uh, so there might be a little bit of a lesson around that. Maybe sometime soon I might get a credit insurance person on to, because uh, sometimes the cover comes and goes. You can't get the cover. So it's one thing to uh, have had the cover. I'd be really interested to know uh, how credit insurers are covering the market at the moment. Is anyone watching? Maybe you'd like to post a comment. Um, now, I wanted to get to the latest news on ProBuild, uh, and that is that uh, a number of ProBuild's major projects are set to be taken over by different builders. With an announcement about the fate of the collapsed builders' uh, jobs expected as early as Monday. So no single builder was likely to take over all the projects of the commercial construction giant which went into administration last month. And potential buyers have been scrutinising the risk profile of each of the 18 projects. Um, so I guess that's, you know, it's going to be a matter of different, different, uh, different, uh, you know, competitors of ProBuild have got different uh, areas where they've got expertise and uh, they're willing to maybe bite, you know, to jerk the cherry pick, I suppose. I guess there'll be some projects that were really underwater that, that don't get picked up at all. Um, what, what are your thoughts there, Mark? I guess the, the, darkest, uh, the darkest fears of John Winter didn't quite, uh, didn't quite come to pass? Um, oh, look, uh, you know, even the, you know, the, the, uh, you know, the bad projects will have to be, uh, you know, uh, and I guess Mark Young did talk to this, have to have a, a new contract attached to them because otherwise uh, an incoming, uh, you know, builder, new builder is not going to take it on. Um, and so, uh, you know, they're, they're, you know in, in the worst case, uh, 
It won't be an assignment of existing contracts. It'll be a case of rewriting the deal, um, it, you know, which reflects uh, the project as on an as-is, where-is basis. Um, okay. So they'll, they'll, they'll still be completed at, at some point. I, I, I really see, you know, in terms of the opportunities, if they are to flow out of uh, this bun fight at the moment, is potentially an opportunity for Tier 2 and Tier 3 builders to maybe pick up one or two of these projects, which will be beyond their current comfort zone, but maybe um, if they can, you know, get garner the support of the secured creditors and the, and the, and the, and the developers, uh, they can, uh, you know, get the experience on, on those uh, Tier 1 jobs and uh, maybe, you know, provide more choice uh, in terms of the Tier 1 space. Um, uh, because at the moment, if we keep seeing collapses like this at Tier 1 builders, it's just going to be, uh, that'll lead to in, in, uh, demand for increased margins and it's going to make uh, some uh, future projects just that much more expensive. Well, some people would argue that increased margins are what are needed to take some of the risk uh, out for these poor old subbies that are thrown under the bus it's because, you know, it's so cutthroat and uh, the margins are so thin and that's why they're, you know, that's why they've got everything uh, everything to lose. Mark Yum, uh, what, are, what are your thoughts when it comes to, I mean, we see these projects. Uh, you, Mark Yum, you're probably a little bit too young. Uh, Mark Robinson, not quite so sure, but... I was uh, I was around uh, in the late eighties, early nineties, and uh, when we had the the recession we had to have, uh, and there were some major collapses of developers. Uh, you know, a lot of Japanese uh, property developers pulled out. And I remember particularly at St Leonard's, there was a, a massive hole in the ground there for for years, uh, and there, were, there there were a few projects around town. I think in Melbourne it might have been worse, where you had half built developments. Actually, there were a few in Parramatta that I recall. Uh, but they have to get finished off, don't they? I mean, if, if the thing's half up and the developer's gone, you know, the, the, the developer or the builder's gone bust. Um, so, Mark, what, what do you think that, uh, would, would you imagine, for example, if, if there's builders, if there's new contractors coming in to pick up these pre contracts, are they going back to the subbies that already had the job? Are they tendering out again? How does it work? Yeah, Nick, so most, most of those head contracts, I'd, I'd, I'd um, say it'd be a good... Uh, to say that they included requirements that the subbies were to be novated across to whoever the developer pleased, um, either to the developer or to a new builder. So um, that side of things probably could be managed, but as Mark Robinson was saying, it's you know like working out um, how much those subbies are to be paid and, and that's all tied up in uh, part of taking it over, the job. Um, and so I think... Um, in the most instances, the important trades are going to come in and continue, um, especially if they're part way through uh, a project and they're at critical stages. Um, every every builder worth worth their salt will want to um, keep or use their own trades where they can. Um, so you know there'll obviously be that part of it in there. Um, the one thing though, I think you know, like we were talking about difficult projects and what happens there. Um, where you might not find a builder who's prepared to come in and take take over the risk that you know the the failed building company has left behind, um, and step into the same risk profile of, of that builder. Um, when that happens, or if that happens, it probably will. Um, I think not just uh, changing the profit margin. Like pro profit margin is a big thing, but like this is probably one of the problems with the with with you know, procurement model at the moment, it's sort of like so bottom line with the dollar figure. 
but not so much about like actually having good think about where the risk can be shifted and allocated to someone who can better handle the risk. Um, so you might find, you know, project alliance um, procurement models becoming more popular as opposed to what we've got now, which is the design and construct lump sum turnkey. So just, just we're running out of time, but just very quickly tell us what you what you mean by the project alliance model. So project alliance model is, is more of a partnership type arrangement, not in the legal sense, but in, in the general conceptual sense. So where it's where you have a developer who who's good at doing, you know, a certain thing will do take on that part of the risk because they know that they can handle that risk better than the builder or at right. least the same, you know, and then everyone in the, in the, in the project Alliance all does the same thing. And it's, it's a more realistic look at the way risk works and who can handle it best. That's another way other than just margins to, to manage that risk. Okay. Now look, we're going to wrap up because uh, we are, we are out of time. Uh, so this is my warning to anyone who's watching and wants to get a question away. Uh, we're, we're, we're slowly wrapping up. Uh, but if you get a question in now, then uh, we'll see what we can do for you. Uh, I wanted to ask you both just in closing, um, you imagine what happens with these large large builders uh, is that sometimes there's rumours. You know, I, I get people ringing me all the time with rumours, oh, have you got any exposure to such and such or, you know, be careful of such and such. And um, If you've got a subcontractor rings you up and, you know, they've got... Uh, a lot of uh, a lot of their team and equipment and and uh, and, and uh, labour force tied up on projects, and they say, "Listen, there's a rumour going around uh, that this contractor that we we subcontracted to, there's a rumour going around that they've got some issues." Uh, what what's what's a good piece of advice you'd have for them? I'll start with you, Mark Young. Go and do an audit of your contract administration and make sure that um, where you can, you can fix up any areas where you've not done you know, notices or whatever it is that you needed to do to ensure that you are doing that. And look downstream to the people you engage and ensure that you've, you've done the same there. Okay, uh, I guess because otherwise if you've got Mark Robinson sitting at the top there, uh, he's, going to be, he's going to be going through your paperwork pretty tightly. So uh, have a look at your own paperwork, make sure it's in order, and also look downstream so the people that are subcontracting to you and supplying to you are the same. What about you, Mark Robinson? Someone picks up the phone, listen, I've heard a rumour... Yeah. Um, you know, people are yeah. telling me they're running out of cash and, you know, what well, should I do? Well, you know, try and secure payment. Um, uh, bring yourself up to date. Uh, uh, you know, limit your exposure. And the best way to do that is work out what leverage you've got uh, in terms of the project life cycle. If you're a certification-style trade that is required in order to get an occupancy certificate down the track or practical completion, um, you know, you, you can then, you know, uh, press that point home uh, that you need to be kept happy and the way to be kept happy uh, is uh, for payments to be kept up to date. Okay. All right. Good stuff. All right. Well, we like happy people. So uh, thank you very much, Mark Young and Mark Robinson, for uh, helping me out with our very first uh, lunch money for 2022. So thank you to all of those who've been watching. Uh, we do hope to have this up on uh, iTunes and Google Podcasts and all that sort of stuff uh, later on so you can listen again or uh, if, 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 that's, if that's what you're into. Okay. Well, thanks a lot, guys. Um, take thanks, it easy. Nick.